So there's a lot of money at stake. That's something that's new in the 20th century. Certainly back in the 19th century, everybody knew there were undercounts, but it didn't really have the meaning that it did in your century, Brian. How does that unfold? Well, it unfolds, first of all, because there are now so many federal programs that are tied to the income of citizens in the various states. So they actually want to count more people of poverty. That's right. It's good to it's good mm-hmm. to be poor. Uh, right, right. For right. Some, sort of turning the stake in society upside down, huh? That that's exactly right. Yeah. So starting in the 1980s, cities began to sue the federal government for the consistent underrepresentation of minorities in the census. And I actually, you guys won't believe this, but I actually participated in a lawsuit that New York City filed in the 1980s against the federal government. Why? Because I ran some welfare programs. And how were we going to prove that there was an undercount? Well, we used my welfare roles Mm. to identify people who showed up on welfare but did not show up in the raw data Mm. for the census, thus proving this undercount. Why did we want this? We wanted this for programs like the school lunch program, Mm -hmm. which are funded based on the amount of impoverished people in a district. Well, 30 years later, I got to talk to the guy I was suing, or we were suing, suing for incompetence, in fact. His name is Vincent Baraba, and in 1980, he was the Census Bureau director. At one of my uh, lighter moments, I said, you know, the ultimate slap in the face is being sued for incompetence by the city of New York. <laughs> and the, and the uh, and Mayor Koch, from then on, he called me Barabbas, <laughs> the robber. <laughs> uh, the Census Bureau ultimately prevailed in that lawsuit. And to be fair, we should say that most of what we know about the undercount over the years comes from none other than the Census Bureau itself. I think the Census Bureau is the only agency of government that not only willingly admits it makes a mistake, but quite precisely estimates the extent to which it made that mistake. (laughs) And it doesn't do it to beat itself up. It does it because it wants to learn how to do a better job the next time out. Now, census directors are political appointees, and because of voting patterns, not all of our leaders in Washington have the same interest in counting every last urban resident. But since Vincent Baraba has the notable distinction of being the only census director ever to have served presidents in both political parties, we can assume he's more or less of a straight shooter. And so I was particularly interested to hear his take on the challenges the Census Bureau faced in 1980 when it fanned out across America's cities. It was relatively straightforward and easy to get to each household. But whether you got everybody inside the household enumerated was right. always a, a more complex question because there might have been some people living in that household who were there, you know, uh, maybe there were more people living in the household than were allowed or that somebody right. might, might be living there in an undocumented status. Right. But then the other part was is that there was a lot of movement you know, in our society at that time. We had just gone through the... Uh, you know, the the age of Aquarius and things of that nature, and and people were a lot looser with their living conditions, mm-hmm. and, uh, and and so is it, it fair it to say a, that relationships were were not as uh, clearly bounded or clearly defined? Oh, there's the classic. I mean, we used to have a thing called the head of the household. Okay. You didn't want to know who the head was. They just wanted to have somebody that you could relate everybody else in the household to. 
And when we first sent out the test questionnaire, I mean, we got, I mean, from Texas, we used to get, <laughs> we take out a negative response saying, what do you mean the head of our household? We don't have a head in our household. <laughs> so uh, that's when we came up with, uh, you know, put a person in column one. That's Vincent Baraba. <laughs> he served as U.S. Census Bureau Director from 1973 to 1976, and again from 1979 to 1981. You can hear a full version of our conversation and all the other interviews in the show at BackstoryRadio.org. In 80 million mailboxes across the USA, the census is a-coming to help us plan the way. It's time for another short break. When we get back, we'll hear from a census enumerator who was paneling the pavement from door to door when Vincent Baraba was barely out of his diapers. You can count on me. Can we count on you? You can count on me. Help your community get equal government representation. Help show where funds are needed for jobs, schools, health care, and more. Answer the 1980 census. And all your answers are kept confidential by law. Support for Backstory comes from the David A. Harrison Fund for the President's Initiatives at the University of Virginia, UVA's Miller Center of Public Affairs, the National Endowment for the Humanities, Carrie Brown Epstein and the W.L. Lyons Brown Jr. Charitable Foundation, James Madison's Montpelier, Marcus and Carol Weinstein, Trish and David Crow, J.M. Weinberg, and an anonymous donor. More backstory coming up in a minute. Don't go away. This is Backstory, the show that turns to history to explain the America of today. I'm Peter Unuf, your 18th century guy. I'm Ed Ayers, your 19th century guy. And I'm Brian Bellow, 20th century history guy. Today on the show, we're marking the culmination of Census 2010 with an in-depth look at the role of the census throughout our history. And as we do on each of our episodes, we're fielding a few of your questions on this topic. Next up on the phone, we have Sean calling in from Austin, Texas. Sean, welcome to Backstory. Thank you. I was wondering if the 1940 census was used to identify persons of Japanese ancestry after President Franklin Roosevelt signed an executive order authorizing the relocation of anyone deemed a threat to national security. Sean, hasn't someone told you that there's a prohibition on asking about specific factual information here on Backstory? I thought that's what you dealt in. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we'll give it our best shot. Um, Yeah, the short story is that that census data was, in fact, used to identify and round up Japanese Americans. The legal fig leaf uh, that was used to justify it was the Second War Powers Act, uh, which also gave the United States the authority under the conditions of war to do things like round up citizens and put them in camps. And this story has been retold recently uh, because of current concerns about privacy issues. There's a prominent uh, representative of Congress, uh, Michelle Bachman, who's made reference to this. And, and, and so let me ask you, Sean, is, is that how you are? Is that why you're asking about this? Because well, it's a... Like you said, this is, uh, comes up every 10 years when there is a census of privacy advocates who bring this up. And it's part of the libertarian folklore. It's like, if they did it once, they can do it again. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and, you know, we, we need to be cognizant. Uh, look, 
Kieran backstory. That's kind of why we do what we do. But we also try to put things in context. I'm curious to hear whether there were similar concerns in your centuries, guys. Yeah, well, back in the 18th century, Brian, certainly uh, the notion that your personal space that is, your home was your castle, is a fundamental one. And it's, uh, of course, written into the Bill of Rights. You don't break into people's houses. I mean, that's what you associate with despotism and tyranny. Uh, And, uh, of course, in the 18th century, we don't have this exaggerated, uh, as Sean calls it, this libertarian obsession because people actually uh, live – in very intimate spaces and don't have a lot of what we would call privacy. and therefore They already know everything there is to know. They know too much. Uh, so we have certainly an exaggerated modern sense of the sanctity of uh, private space. Uh, we have larger houses. We have rooms of our own, yeah. to quote Virginia Woolf. And along with that goes a, a heightened sense of the uh, integrity of our own space. You know, you could almost see the suspicion of the census as a kind of a canary in the coal mine of what particular anxieties that Americans have over time. So there's a great cartoon that maybe we can put online at backstoryradio.org. It's from August of 1860, right after the census had been taken in that summer. And it shows a, a kind of a slimy-looking government bureaucrat <laughs> walking into a, a beautiful 19th century parlor with everybody rendered and just a kind of the cherubic plumpness that we imagine of 19th century domesticity. And he says, folks, I just need a few questions answered. Are there any idiots here? Are there any imbeciles here? Are there any deaf, dumb, and blind people here? How old might the female members of the household be? And just a final question, I wonder how much money you might actually have. (laughs) You know, and it it says in uh, parentheses at the bottom, general agitation around the table. Uh, You know, and so that everybody is worked up. It strikes me that it's not an accident that that cartoon was about the parlor, Mm-hmm. That it was about mm-hmm. the family, right. that it was about the ages of women, and that it was about the increasingly hidden aspect of a family's income. You know, back in the 18th century, it seems to me, Peter, people had a pretty good idea how yep. much money people had because those, it was on the acres display. were hard to hide. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. But in this Victorian parlor, you know, people have bank stock and, mm-hmm. you know, promissory notes and all these different kinds of things. And so the government seems to be becoming ever more inquisitive. And yet we didn't really hear, other than a a few cartoons like this, many objections to it. So it's ironic that at the time you see the greatest scaling up of the inquisitiveness of the federal government, you don't really see a rebellion. It comes later, in some ways, after the damage, if you want to think of it that way, has already been done. Yeah, it suggests to me uh, that there's an important symbolic element to this It's uh, not that this is the only time that your life is in any way influenced by the state, quite the contrary, but this is the one time because of this symbolic psychological invasion of personal space that you can say no. Or you can say, you know, maybe this is the step too far into my life, even though government is in fact responsible for the conditions of ordinary life increasingly through your century and definitely through Bryan's and into ours. Uh, But what really puzzles me is that in the 21st century, we have come to accept the gathering of data and information in the private sector 
we voluntarily put information about ourselves out on social networks so that there's an odd disconnect between this fetish of uh, leave me alone, leave me into my own personal space, and the way the whole corporate world, anybody, is gathering and can deploy information about us promiscuously. Uh, Sean, does that strike you as a disconnect? Uh, Yes, somewhat. And the government is prohibited from collecting a lot of this information, but nothing prohibits them from buying it from these private sources. (laughs) No, that's exactly right. And you may know, Sean, that uh, in Canada, there's serious discussion about doing away with the census and using these private data sources, Mm -hmm. which, of course, the data has been given voluntarily by people. Every time you shop. Much more every time you (laughs) shop as a more reliable way of getting uh, the kind wow. of information that our census or the Canadian census currently in a very straightforward way goes to people and people resist it. I say, I'm not giving that to you. But we give all this information because we do think, yeah, you know, yeah, right, someone's sitting there at Google caring about me. Yeah, sure. So we say... There's an yeah. algorithm out there that wants you. <laughs> Thanks a lot for calling. Thank you, Sean. And what is your social security number? <laughs> oh, yeah, no, I'll no, send we'll it send... along with my credit card info. <laughs> We just want your barcode. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you very much. Thank you. Now, we'll have to say the story of the Census Bureau's role in the internment of Japanese-Americans is really one of the worst episodes of how these data can be used for a whole range of political ends, depending on what's going on at the time. And another thing that was going on around that 1940 census, besides World War II, was that America was climbing out of the Great Depression. And sure enough, we get a bunch of new questions about employment status on that year's form. And we'll post an image of it at BackstoryRadio.org. You'll see questions like how much people are working, whether they're looking for work, that sort of thing. And Congress also authorizes a separate census of housing to be administered along with the regular population survey. If I told you that that housing survey added 31 questions to the 34 that were already on the regular questionnaire, you would begin to feel pretty bad for those folks who had to stand there and answer one question after another. This was decades before people just mailed in forms. But what about the census takers? What was the experience like from their side of the clipboard? We put in a call to find out. I am Al Marquardt. I live in Kingston, New York. I took the census in 1940 as a 19-year-old right out of high school the previous June. After graduating from high school, Al Marquardt was unable to find work for the good part of a year. So he headed down to the post office where the Census Bureau had set up its temporary headquarters. And Mrs. O'Reilly... Miss O'Reilly, excuse me, who was doing the hiring, uh, made the remark, oh, I want you because I can read your handwriting. Well, Al was put to work in a neighborhood abutting the Kingston Brickyards, home mostly to immigrants and African Americans. There was a question on how many tons of coal do you burn in a year? And I remember this very specifically. This Italian lady say that she wore out so many tons of coal. Well, after you get through with them, burning it in the fire, yeah, sure, worn out. <laughs> did people invite you in for a cup of tea, or did you stand on the doorstep? 
I can remember along the brickyard, one of the shacks, being told, sit right down there, boss. Sit down there on my bed or sit on that chair. Well, the chair no longer had any cane in it. So I kind of hung through. (laughs) (laughs) What did you learn from gathering all these data that you didn't know before you started this job? Oh, boy. Oh, it opened my eyes to see that people could live in conditions in which some of them existed. Yeah. And it always amazes me the respect that a 19-year-old got from people who are two, three times older than I was. Do you think that people respected you because they feared you? In other words, they feared the government? Or do you think that they were proud to be talking to a representative of the government? It certainly wasn't fear. It was not fear? No, I think it was total respect for the government. Because remember, back in that day, the government did things for you. Remember Franklin Roosevelt's, um, uh, all of his programs. And I'm sure that many of these people benefited from those programs. Al Marquardt was an enumerator in the 1940 census. You can hear the full version of our conversation, including his account of what he did with his census wages, at backstoryradio.org. So as we've seen in the case of 1940, the decennial census gives us all kinds of useful information, everything from basic population figures to the nation's consumption of coal. But it also gives the rest of us a periodic snapshot of ourselves as a nation. For example, the 1890 census led Frederick Jackson Turner to issue his famous pronouncement about the end of the American frontier because that's what the census had told us. And in 1920, the census made clear once and for all that America was now a predominantly urban nation. In 1921, Robert Frost published a poem called The Census Taker. Its narrator, we can assume, is an enumerator from the year before who comes upon a one-room shack one evening in the middle of what had been New Hampshire woods. Backstory producer Catherine Moore is going to lead us through that poem now and tell the story of how the 1920 census played out in Washington. Like all census takers at all points in history, this one is trying to count people. But that's hard to do in a ghost town. I came as census taker to the waste to count the people in it and found none. None in the hundred miles. None in the house where I came last with some hope. But not much. After hours overlooking from the cliffs, an emptiness flayed to the very stone. When the 1920 census results came back, they confirmed what many had expected for some time. For the first time ever, the majority of Americans now lived in cities. It was a season of change. The time was autumn, but how anyone could tell the time of year when every tree that could have dropped a leaf was down itself, and nothing but the stump of it was left. The house is no ordinary house, but a bunkhouse for the loggers who recently cut down every tree in sight. The rural landscape is literally fueling urban growth. 
And the census taker isn't the only one disoriented by the rural flight. When the 1920 numbers were in and it came time to reapportion the House of Representatives, it became clear that rural states would lose eight seats and urban states would gain 11. For the Republicans who controlled Congress, many of whom found support in those small rural states, this was difficult to swallow as it was for many of their constituents, who had all sorts of negative associations with the idea of an urban industrial society. Violence, moral perversion, food shortages, labor conflict, immigrants. Perhaps the wind, the more without the help of breathing trees, said something of the time of year or day, the way it swung a door forever off the latch, Whether from isolation or fatigue, our narrator is becoming a little deluded himself. Each time the wind slams the door of the bunkhouse, he imagines it's a man walking inside, and so he does what any good census taker would do with these apparitions. He starts to count them. I counted nine. I had no right to count. But this was dreamy, unofficial counting. Before I made the tenth across the threshold. Where's my supper? There was anyone's. Spooked by no the ghostly scene inside, the census taker no grabs a weapon. I armed myself against such bones as might be. With the pitch-blackened stub of an axe handle, I picked up off the straw-dust-covered floor. Delusion, fear, dreamy, unofficial counting. This could just as well describe the response in Washington to the census that year. Faced with the requirement that they realign themselves to the nation's urban shift, Congress made history by... Well, not doing anything at all. Nor did they do anything the next year. Or the year after that. For almost a decade, in fact, Congress flouted the Constitution and failed to reapportion. An apportionment bill finally passed in 1929, but for 20 years, the power balance of America's system of representation essentially remained stuck in time. Nothing was left to do that I could see. In the poem's final lines, the census taker commands the ghostly presences to speak up or hold their peace. The place is desert, and let whoso lurks in silence, if in this he is aggrieved, break silence now, or be forever silent. Though a deep sorrow is conjured by this scene of inescapable change, The census taker knows that for life to move forward, those ghosts who tie him to the past must be banished. The melancholy of having to count souls where they grow fewer and fewer every year is extreme, where they shrink to none at all. It must be I want life to go on living We wouldn't need a census if not for the constant of change. Part of its value is that it forces us, every ten years, to confront our own transformation and ask questions like, who are we? Who are we no longer? And who might we become? It can be tempting to cling to our idea of what was, yet every ten years, the census asks us to give up our ghosts. That's Backstory producer Catherine Moore. 